Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi. As always, trying to locate myself within conflicting schedules, so let me see if I can knock this one off. Now, I see, looking in the calendar, they have the rod bars coming up, and that's somebody I can talk about, even if I'm going to get in a car. Uh, the rod bars. Let me uh, just say that this has been a difficult week here in Baltimore. One of my best friends passed away, Mr. Jake Schuchman, and this is uh, something of an emotional time. But So I'll dedicate this uh, podcast in his memory. Yaakov, go and Yeshua. But him with the Rod Bars, probably somebody most of you never heard of. Um, whoever's listening, I don't know who you are. Uh, this is a big rabbi from the 1500s. It's actually usually thought of as boring. It's not boring at all. Redabed uh, Abizimra, which is a Sephardic name. To be perfectly honest, you find that name in the Gemara. Yosef Abizimra. And uh, here you deal with a very interesting period of the Sephardim leaving Spain and trying to locate themselves outside of Spain. So here's somebody who lived from around 1480, something like that, to like 1573. It's well known he died in his 90s. There are legends that he lived to be 110, 120, whatever, but it was above him. But still, in those days, to make it to 90-something is pretty good. Uh, You know, like 93, 94, whatever, something along those lines. Now, uh, our hero, again, so it's uh, David uh, Ben Abizimra. So, Ibn Zimra. So, let's call him David. And he's known as the Radbaz. And uh, here's one of the big response writers, which always interests me. Um, here's somebody who's born 12, 13 years before the Jews are kicked out of Spain. In Spain. So, he's a real Sephardi. And as I mentioned a number of times, by now, some of you listen should know, there are two types of Jews in Spain in the 1400s. Those whose parents and grandparents had converted and they were stuck, and the Inquisition was after them. And then there was the other group that was lucky that for one reason or another, their family was never forced to convert. They were allowed to be Jewish, and they remained Jewish. And that group included all kinds of Jews. I'm talking about the Jewish Jews. You know, the not from, the yes from, this from, that from, including an elite that was really into learning and all that sort of thing, and that's his family. Now, that means if he was born around 1480 or 1479, something like that, so like 12 or 13 years old when the catastrophe hits and they're all expelled from Spain. It's a little bit like Maimonides. The Ramam also was like Bar Mitzvah when all hell broke loose and his world collapsed. So here you are, a boy growing up in, uh, I forget where, somewhere in Spain. And, uh, you know, life is what it is. And all of a sudden you got to leave. All the Jews have to leave. Those Jews who didn't leave had to convert. And so his family runs away, <coughs> and they schlepzich. There are all kind of terrible tales about those who fled Spain. Many of them were attacked and robbed on the way and killed and raped and this and that and the other. There's a whole book called, uh, what's it called? Shevet Yehuda, classic of Jewish historiography, which goes into the sufferings of those refugees. And his family was refugees, but I don't know whatever happened to them. They went 
they fled right away to Morocco, which if you see is exactly across the, the water from Gibraltar, across the water from Spain. So they ran away to the next country over, which was a Muslim country where they could remain Jewish. So these are people who are Sephardim to Horim. They never converted. They gave up everything they had just to keep up Yiddishkeit. It's quite impressive. And they went to Morocco, and eventually from Morocco, uh, they probably caught their breath, and then sailed to Israel, Palestine, uh, and settled in Sfas. Isn't that interesting? And I think even for Yerushalayim for a while. Now, here we're talking about Eretz Israel, Palestine, in the 1490s. That's a long time ago. And here's a boy growing up as a teenager in pre-Turkish Palestine, because the Turks don't come until 1520 or so. And this is remarkable, because at that time, Israel was what you call under the Egyptian, ruled of the Egyptian Mamluks. The Mamluks were a slave caste uh, who overthrew their masters and took over the country. And so Egypt was ruled by a dynasty of these former slave, now Pasha sultans, for about 200 years, maybe close to 300 years even, something like that. And uh, he moves to Israel. This is the beginning of the time when the modern state of Israel comes to be, meaning there were hardly any Jews in the Middle Ages living in Israel. Uh, There were some, but they usually killed out by the Crusades or by the terrible health conditions there, which were unbelievable. And then, after 1492, so two things happened. Number one, you get quantity. Number two, you get quality. In terms of quantity, some, some of the Jews, like this guy's family, made Aliyah and moved, once they're kicked out of Spain, might as well go to Israel. And that's in terms of quantity. So literally, the numbers of Jews, physical numbers, increased from Spanish refugees joined by some others. And uh, these are people who go, it's not like the modern Zionism. They went to cities. You know, they went to Yushalayim. Tzfas actually became interesting because it was high up and better climate. Uh, Hebron, you know, a couple of places like that. And that's number one. And number two, quality. The uh, Israel used to be notorious as total amaratsim and worse. And I think I mentioned over here, there's a famous tuba from, what's the name? The Trimus Adeshin in Europe to a Talmud Chacham where he said, don't make Aliyah, don't, don't destroy you. The Israelis are unbelievably bad. I hate to say it, he says, uh, theoretically we should all make Aliyah, but the Israelis are so bad, the few Jews are there, they're Malshinim, they're Ganavim, they're murderers, they're stay here and sit and learn, even though I'm not happy telling you that, he said. But, uh, so nobody knew how to get along with these Israeli Jews, whoever they were. And then in 1490, what's the name, shut up, uh, Bartonur, the famous guy who wrote the thing on the Mishnah, Avadia Bartonur, who was an Italian Jew, and it seems he knew how to handle with them. You understand? Jews, it's a question of get, touching the right button. Even the biggest jerk, the biggest schmo, uh, if you know how to get along with them, it, it's possible. It's not easy, but it's possible. And he did. And he started to organize Jewish life in Israel, at least in Yerushalayim. They should have a shul, they should have a kedisha, they should have a tzedakah, you know, get a, get a real Jewish community going together. And he was aided by the fact that even though he's Italian and came 1490, but shortly thereafter, the Jews start coming into Israel, and that's who the Radbas is one of those families. Uh, and this is a boy who obviously is taking to learning. You know, by the Sephardim, especially in those years, didn't have mass yeshiva so much. And so there's an elite. I would say like this, 1% goes to advanced learning. He's from the 1%. Uh, he, he took to it. And uh, listen to this. So the family tries to make it in, um, in Yerushalayim, in Sfas. But like many people, 
the economy's no good, they can't make it. Like the Rambam did the same thing. He ran away to Palestine and he couldn't make it and moved to Egypt. So that's what this family does. So he writes that he had important rabbis when he was in Israel, but he's there for a very short time. So how old are we talking about over here? We're talking about a boy who's, uh, I don't know, moves in 1493, let's say, 1494 to Palestine. So that would make him eh, 13, 14 years old. And he's there in growing up in Eretz Yisrael from the age, let's say, for example, of 14 to, I don't know, the age of, uh, give it about 20 years approximately. So 14 to uh, 34. That's very important years. So that means his early years, he and the family are Maoish, sitting and learning, or he is anyway, in Yerushalayim and Tzfas. He has these rabbis you never heard of. Yosef Sargosi, don't worry about it. Uh, these are all Sephardi guys. Nobody's ever heard of. The big time in Chacham, but nobody's ever heard of him. Now, um, when he's about uh, 30, I guess, he's born in 1480, so he's in his 30s, his early 30s. So uh, the economy was bad, he moved to Egypt, where he spent many years. I would say he spent 40 years in Egypt. So think about what I'm saying. From the age of 33 to approximately the age of 73, something like that, uh, which is a long time, 40 years, he's in Egypt. Just like the Rambam did, same thing. Once he shows up in Egypt, he's not Stam, uh, uh, some guy in the Veldorine, who came as a serious Tamil Chacham. Uh, and he came in a very important moment in the history of Egyptian Jewry, and here you have a broad topic. Because what happened to the Sephardim when they are kicked out of Spain? The following happened. They moved to the Middle East. Well, what did they find in the Middle East? The answer, my friends, is they found in the Middle East Jewish communities which are not Sephardic. Even though today, like in a racist way, you say you're all Sephardim. They're not. The Iranians, for example, are not Sephardim. The Egyptian Jews were something called Egyptian Jews. The Syrian Jews were something called Syrian Jews. The uh, Babylonian Iraqi Jews were Iraqi Jews. The Yemenites, as we all know, have the Yemenite Jews. They have their own minhagim, their own halachas even, their own uh, you know uh, way of doing Judaism. It's not identical with the Spanish one. The Spanish one was in Spain. And until 1492... The overwhelming majority of Spanish Jews are living in Spain, as it would be expected. So they're not Sephardim. They have their own way of doing things. The Turkish Jews, for example, that were in Turkey before 1492, the Ottoman Empire, they're not, they're not Sephardim. Okay, that's it. But then these Sephardi guys, running away from Spain, show up. And what happens then is a culture war for 100 years. Because the Sephardim come in and say, listen, guys, we're going to change the davening the way we do it. We're changing them and hugging the way do we do it. Or change the weddings and the divorces and the stars and everything else the way we do it. And the locals say, what do you mean the way you're doing it? We've been doing it like this forever. Well, you guys are wrong. We can prove it through Talmudic knowledge. The heck with your Talmudic knowledge. We have big rabbis. We've been doing it here this way. And fights and fights and fights. This is what we call the culture wars of the 16th century. Very, very interesting. And by the way, even the Sephardim had no unified Sephardi way. There's the Aragon uh, Minhagim and the Castile Minhagim and the Saragossa ones, and the Valencia, and the Barcelona, you know what I mean? They were just like in Europe. You know, there's the Galtianers, there's the Litvaks, there's this, there's Labavas, there's all, even though they're all part of Eastern Europe, but they're all very different one another in the specific ways they practice Judaism. So the Middle East was a hodgepodge, okay? It was a hodgepodge. And at the time I'm talking about, um, which is the early 1500s, the Turkish Empire, the Ottoman Empire, was only in Turkey and in Europe and in the Balkans. It was not in the Middle East. The Radbaz shows up in Egypt 
at a time when it's still under the old system, the Mamluks, as I said before. But within a, and and uh, there, it's it's very. I could go on this forever, but the trouble is, I don't want to. Um, you heard of the Rambam? Great. Well, the Rambam was a Spaniard, a Sephardi. He went in the 1100s. He moved to Egypt. They're not Sephardim over there. The Rambam was a very smart cookie, and therefore, he knew don't rock the boat. And he 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 always was a Sephardi. He always wrote himself that way, but. He blended in with the local Minhagim with a couple of changes. He was very diplomatic. This is the side of the Rambam most people are not familiar with. They're very diplomatic in dealing with the local Jews. They made him the Av Beis and all the rest of it, but not with the idea that they should overturn their Minhagim and all the rest. He didn't do that. So he's a Sephardi, the Rambam, but he, like I said before, adjusted to and fit in with the Egyptian Minhagim and the Egyptian milieu. In, in, in the Arabic language, they call the Jews Mistarvim in the, in the Sepharim. Mr. Avim means the ones like the Aravim, like the Arabs, meaning the Arab Jews. They're not Sephardim. And the Rambam was so successful at this. Uh, really, it's very interesting. You know, I mean, this is the side of the Rambam, I'll tell you, most people don't know. The Rambam was so successful at this that uh, he was very popular. And when he died, the position, the government, let me backtrack a minute. This is under the Mamluks and those guys. The Rambam was even before that. The system that used to be in Egypt was the following. Just as the government is a dictatorship where they have a sultan or somebody like that at the top with absolute power. So they said to the Jewish community, appoint your own sultan, or in fact I will. And that guy should be like your little dictator and he will have the absolute power. And so if he makes a knas, it's a knas. If he wants to kill somebody, he can kill somebody. And if he wants just to run the basins and all that, he can do that too. So it's a position with tremendous power. Something like a Reish Galusa. Tremendous power. The Rambam is called Nagid. Nagid. The Rambam in his day... Because of his personality, his diplomacy, and his, uh, you know, his obvious reputation, he was appointed by the government to be the head honcho. If the Rama had wanted to play hardball when he was in Egypt, which he did not want to do this, but let's say he wanted to do this, he could have killed people and tortured them and this and that and the other. He had that kind of power. But being that he's the Rambam, he only did everything outside of Yosha Ramas. That's who he was. Okay? So because he did not abuse his power, the Rambam, when he was the official head of the Jews in Egypt... He got so popular that when he died, the people just said his son should take over. So the government appointed his son, Avram ben Aramam, to be the Nagid. So he wasn't just a rabbi, and he didn't simply have a, a yeshiva or something like that, and he wasn't simply an Alf Basin, but he had power power. You know, he could, he, he could do stuff. And Avram ben Aram was a chip off the old block, and he did the same thing like the Rambam. He got very outside of Yosha v'hatzedek v'ayemes. He didn't harm anybody, you know, and this kind of didn't rock the boat, and we're very balanced. Uh, this is an interesting side of the Maimonidean family. They played the politics very, very cleverly, to the satisfaction of the Goyim and to the satisfaction of the Jews, which is just, which is interesting. Now, he was so popular, they became a minig, all for the next couple hundred years. Uh, it was like a dynasty. When Avon ben Aramam died, it went to his son, and when that guy died, it went to his son, and when that guy died, it went to his son. And so you had like a dynasty of the descendants of the Rambam who were like mini Reish Galusas in Egypt. And they didn't change the local Minhagim. And the Rambam himself had some funny Hanhagas. For example, uh, it was in Egypt you always had a lot of Karaim. The big question was how to fear itself with the Karaim. Should you kill him? He might have been able to do that. Uh, should you put him in Kherim? Should you say they're all Mamzerim? There are strong halachic arguments to say they have no getting, you know, they're getting no good, so they're a bunch of Mamzerim, literally. 
Or alternatively, you can go the other direction and say, they're not Mamzerim because their condition doesn't count, so therefore, you know, like our Moshe Feinstein with the reform. The condition doesn't count, so therefore, the, the Gittin don't you have to worry about. Um, should be Makar of them. Should be Merachik them. The Rambam, just give me one example, took a policy that you should be Makar of them. He writes this and uh, try to win him over to uh, Judaism. And he had a certain amount of success. And his son did the same thing, and their successor did the same thing. Akirekach, that some of the descendants of the Rambam married Karaite women, meaning who became from, and obviously there was no question in their mind about the Yichas and all that kind of business. So Egypt was a very interesting kind of place. Most people are not familiar with the Jewish history in Egypt, which generally was good. Every once in a while you had a problem, but generally it was good. So during the Middle Ages and the early modern era, you know, other than the regular problems of climate and health and that kind of thing, uh, you know, but, uh, if you lived in Egypt, there weren't really pogroms and things of that nature. Uh, it, it, it was okay. And if you know what you're doing economically, it's mamash okay. So Egypt had a long-standing uh, Jewish community. And when the Mamluk dynasty reigned, it was the Rambam Nugget guys. Uh, and that means that the Nugget is rich and powerful and all the rest of it. Uh, the Rambam, of course, was a world-class genius. So was his son. By the time they had the grandson, the great-grandson, they weren't world-class geniuses, but they were nice guys. They weren't even Maimonidean, you know, they didn't know secular studies or any of that kind of stuff. That's all. Okay, now when you get to the 1500s, so the Ottoman Empire conquered the Middle East. This is called the Sultan Selim. Uh, Selim the, the Great. In 1517 and 1520, his armies overran what you call today uh, Syria, Palestine, and Egypt. And all of a sudden, the Ottoman Empire rules the Middle East. And later on, they took Iraq and Saudi Arabia. So, the Radbaz, our hero today, lived, showed up just before this happened, and lived during this time of a switch of regime. So, for a couple hundred years, it had been regime A, and now afterwards, regime B. From now on, from about 1520 to 1920, basically, or roughly, Egypt and Middle East will be under the Ottoman Empire. And uh, that's a new reality. They didn't have an Agid. The Turks, the Ottoman Turks didn't want that. They just said, just have a chief rabbi, you know. But uh, we, we have the power, power. That's, that's just who the Turkish government was. And so the question then became, who should be the rabbi, rabbi? And this relatively young guy, Radbaz, he's about 40, something like that, roughly. Uh, he came to be elected to be the rabbi, rabbi in Egypt and Cairo, where he lived. Now, uh, that means... That from 1520 to 1553, so another 33 years, that's a fair amount of time. Uh, so the guy was uh, the Rav Rashi, you might say, in Cairo and therefore in Egypt. So he had a position of power. He didn't have the power like the other guys had before him, you know, to, you know, to kill people and stuff. But he had a lot of influence and power. Now, I'm going to tell you something very interesting. The Rodbaz was a huge Talmud Chacham, otherwise I wouldn't be talking about him today. He ends up writing Shalos and Shubas from all over the world. It's like five, six volumes all over the way. Uh, he he uh, ends up, you know, being like you say, an Avadi Yosef type. That's who he was. And uh, in addition to that, though, here's the difference. I don't know why, but when he moved to Egypt, he went into business. And he turned out to be a phenomenally successful businessman. So the guy's a multi-millionaire, a multi-multi-multi-millionaire. So this is very unusual. You have a guy who had Torah Gedul Bamakamecha. You don't usually find this. That he was, he emerged as a Vadi Yosef of his time, 
when, when there were a lot of big avadias to run around, the 1500s when you had some serious Friday gedolim, I mean biggies, just off the top of my head, you were Yosef Karo, the Marishtam, the Marin Lev, you know, the Mabe, I mean, you had a lot, a lot of Mar Malashkar, Maribe Rav, I mean, this is a, a golden age of the Sephardic Spanish uh, 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 Talmud scholarship. But the Rod is up there with the top of them. So here's a guy who is going to spend 30 years occupying the top dog position. I don't know how he pulled it off. He has a yeshiva, naturally. That's what they would do. He is also the Av Basin. He's writing Charles and Shubas all day long because he's getting letters from all over the world. His reputation spread. He became one of those responsive writers. Uh, and he's also running a successful import and export operation. I kid you not. We're trading all over the Middle East, especially with Venice and those kind of things. So clearly, he must have had what we call today networks. You know, he knew everybody, and he knew the right merchants in other countries. And I'm pretty sure in my mind that in Egypt, what happened was the rich merchants, like the Gemara says he's supposed to, help the Tamil Chachma, the Pragmati, you know. They probably clued him into good business deals. Having said that, the guy couldn't have made it unless he was a successful businessman. So here you have uh, an early Akron, as they call it, who's a multi-multi-millionaire. They say his house was full of, uh, of gold coins. He had a mansion in, in Cairo, a mansion. He also had a yeshiva. A guy like I'm describing doesn't need to go fundraising. This is really Targdul Malkamechad. You can tell everybody else to jump at a lake. He can, he can bankroll his whole operation. Think about that. He can bankroll his, his own yeshiva. It doesn't get better than that. And how he divided his day, that's just interesting to me as a social historian. In other words, did you spend 9 to 12 every day running the business and 12 to 6 learning or the other way around? Or did you take off two days or a day a week to run the business and the other days totally for learning? Because you can't be a guy in his league that you just learn a little bit a day, and, you know, an hour here, an hour there. I mean, you're talking serious time just to run the basins, all the rest of it. So it's just fascinating to me. And if you read his Shalas and Shivas, you see that, as I said before, he soon emerged as an Avad Yosef type, and people all look to him. And he writes that when he walks in the, in the marketplace, what you and I would call today Wall Street, the Wall Street of Cairo, people would hand him petics, you know, letters. The letters are Shilas because they know he doesn't have time. He's a businessman. doesn't have time to sit and yak with you. So if I have a Shiloh about Avelis or a Shiloh about Chosha Mishpur, or a Shiloh about, you know, when's Yontif this year, or, uh, you know, any of the Dalek Halki Shulchan as they say, you just write it up and you hand it to him, and when he gets home and has time, he will respond. Isn't that very interesting? I'm sure he had a secretary, a guy like I can afford two secretaries. Three. It's just very interesting. You see what I'm saying? Uh, I'm always, uh, what shall I say, noticing these Gedolim that are like the Chayonim and others, if they're a businessman, they bring a certain mentality, do they not? They're very masudr, they're very organized, they're very good writers, because, you know, in business, communication is extremely important. Make yourself clear to your clients, to your others. And therefore, the Radbaz is very clear, isn't he? If you ever look at the Chubas Radbaz, very clear writer in, the, uh, in, in his uh, halachic writings, and uh, very fresh, and uh, no baloney, and very muzan, very balanced, and it never goes too far in one direction or another direction. I remember seeing years ago, sometimes he writes like this. You know, you ask me a question. The Torah says, Drachel Darchinom. Darchinom means that it has to be Atzedek Vahayosher Vahayosher That the halachas have to be Seicheldech. You know, you can't give me some crazy psak. It's got to it's gotta work. Which I thought is very interesting, you know. And uh, now his... She was not like a Vad Yosef, which are long, long, long. But uh, on the other hand, he made it to the front rank. 
let's face it, if you're in the yeshiva world in general, yeah, you don't know about most of these Sephardi guys. Uh, you only run across them if you read about Yosef, especially the the short ones, you know, Chavadas. So you see this famous rabbi here, and that thing, and you say, who's that? I don't know. It's like a parallel universe. But there are some Sephardim who achieved A-plus status that the whole world knows about even outside the Sephardi world, and the Rod Baz is certainly one of them. Shalos choose Rod Baz or Nixi, some parcel. He, uh, therefore you have just a very interesting guy, and um, what can I tell you? He spends 33 years, as I said before, running this operation in Egypt. Little by little, like the Rambam, he, he reminds me of the Rambam, little by little, he gets the locals to change a little here, change a little there, uh, diplomatically, quietly. He's famous for some of those changes. For example, this is going to be funny what I'm going to tell you. In, up to his time, they still were doing the Minyan Ashtaris. You know what that is? From the, in the Gemara says you're supposed to count like the Greek kings. So that used to mean that the Jews, if you read old, old form, like from the Gonic times, they won't say the words 2019, obviously, and they won't even say Tavshin Pei, because they count from Anna Mundi, the creation world. What they'll say is, it's such and such a year, Laminian stars. What is Laminian stars? It's a screwball system. It uses the year 312 BCE as the year one. Why the year 312 BCE? That's when the Seleucid Empire was founded at the Battle of Gaza, when Seleucus and Ptolemy fought off uh, uh, Antigonus Cyclops. Who the heck are you talking about? What are you talking about? Well, it goes back to the time of Alexander the Great, when Alexander conquered the world and then died without heirs. His generals fought it out, and one of them was General Seleucus, another was Ptolemy, another was Antigonus, it was Cassander, and one important point over there was when Seleucus was almost wiped out and then saved his hide and founded an empire in the Battle of Gaza in 312 B.C. What's that got to do with Jews? The answer, my friends, is that later on, like before Hanukkah, the Jews came under the Seleucid Empire. At that time, they adopted the custom of going by the years of the Malachim. They wanted for Darche Shalom, uh, for, by the years of the king. For some screwball reason, because we Jews are nuts, you know that, they, it became like a minhug that you always use that calendar. Long after the Seleucid Empire destroyed, long after Hanukkah, when the Jews successfully rebelled and overthrew the Seleucid Empire in Israel, long after the Roman Empire even, into the Middle Ages, the Jews were still using the, the uh, Minyan Ashtaris. If you read the Ger Shuragon uh, from the 900s, the art school is publishing my edition of this this week, actually. The Ger Shuragon. It's going to be a companion volume for the 72 volume fancy schmancy uh, shots, you know. So, uh, you, you look for, you'll, they'll, they'll be advertising it soon. Anyway, the long bef- you know, long after this, in the time of the Gon, they're still using the Minyan Ashtaris. Like I say, using the year 312 B.C., which is the foundation of the Seleucid Empire, as the beginning of the, uh, what do you call it, as, as the Jewish Cheshwin. Understand me well. I'm talking about Gitin, Ksuvis, Shtaros, I mean, halachically important documents, okay? Now, what happened was, in the later Middle Ages, the custom was dropped, because it was ridiculous, and they end up doing some variation of what we do today, which is we go by Bria Olam. You know, not everywhere, but generally Bria Olam. Okay? Now, uh, isn't that right? I mean, you go anywhere today, it's, it's Bria Solom. Now, uh, you know, the year of 5,700 and, what, 80 years since the uh, creation of the world. That, that kind of thing. Now, um, in Egypt, and in another place, they still did the old system. When the rabbis came, what are you going to tell them? The getting there, no good, you got to change now. Slowly but slowly, little by little, he got them to change and nor- quote-unquote normalize. 
It's known all in the history books. Here's another example. This is really cute. When the Rambam was the chief rabbi in the Nagid in Egypt, he didn't make many rules, but he made some rules. One rule, this is, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, is he abolished the Salish Monastery. How come? I'll tell you why I think. Maybe I mentioned this to you before. The Rambam, if you know his history, when he was young, he had to pretend to be a Muslim. That's how it went, otherwise he'd get killed. So the Rambam was in mosques and things like that. Uh, you know, they had to, to fake it out. Wait a minute. Um, in a mosque, it's, it's, everybody's quiet during davening. Absolute silence. You have a thousand people and nobody talks during prayers. Then you come to a synagogue. What can I tell you, my friends? <laughs> it's a bummer, right? It's nothing but talking. So somebody like the Rambam, who eventually flees the Muslim environment, comes to Egypt, comes out of the closet, becomes a big rabbi, and now he's running the shoals in Cairo and Alexandria, these places, you come on Shul and Shabbos, it's unbelievable talking, as we all know. Of course, this doesn't happen in America, and nobody talks in Shul in this country, right? So anyway, it, couldn't, it freaked him out, literally freaked him out, and so the Rambam writes, there's a letter like this, in which he says, um, I can't stand the Chil Hashem, it's unbelievable, the guy make fun of us, it knows, it's a Chilul Hashem, the Muslims know that the Jews are talking and hawking and you know doing business and all this sort of thing in Shul, and I've given up trying to get people to stop talking. The only thing you can do is abolish the silent Shemoneh so that, you know, the Iker talking is during Chazar shots, right? So this way, it won't be like that, because the shots, the Chazar shots will not be the Chazar shots. That'll be the, the Sol Shemoneh And uh, when the Ragbaz comes to Egypt, he's very famous, he, he said, what's this? You know, no silent Shemoneh And they said, oh, it's a Rambam said it. He said, baloney, that's a bunch of bull. They showed him, the, the Ragbaz says, they showed me the letter. It's in Arabic from the Rambam where he says what I just told you. And I was shocked, but I hear the vart. And it's a perfect example of the kind of hanhog of the way the Rambam ran the show in his time, which is you have to, you know, hold them and fold them and know how to uh, paskin uh, and guide your flock because you're not going to be able to, he's the Rambam realistic, you're not going to be able to get him to shut up during davening. So you have to end up, you know, trying to minimize it this way. And the Radbaz says, okay, that was good until then, and I respect that, but now we're going back to the regular standard. I'm sure this didn't happen overnight. Think about it. You didn't, You never heard of a silent monastery. Your father never died that way. Your bubby, your bubby's bubby, your grits 80s, 80, and all the rest of it. How he pushed it in, he must have been a diplomat, ship of diplomats. Uh, there are many other, I mean, obviously you're talking about uh, five, six volumes. That there is, he wrote thousands of chubas, and I think they published 3,000. 3,000, that's a lot. Um, a lot of them never were lost. Uh... I always liked to read the Shubhas Rad long ago, but they used to be in lousy print, and now about 15 years ago, 18 years ago, something like that, they finally came out with a nice edition I saw it was in the paper. It's a beautiful edition. Uh, if you're at all interested, I don't know who you are, but you know if you're interested in history or you're interested in, just to read somebody who writes very well in terms of Shalos and Shubhas, the Rod Boss is up there. He's very nice, very good, and he's always very personal, like my student asked me this, when we were at a bar mitzvah, you know, he writes along those lines, and he's an old Dalakalki Shokonark. He also has an Agatata. He also has on Kabbalah. He's the famous one. He was a Makubal. He was a Makubal. But he says, when the Nigla says one way and the Nister says another way, this is what he writes. I paskin like the Nigla. Me, myself, and I, if it's a Machmer, I'll do like the Nister. Yeah? That's the right way to be. So he's making on the others, Machmer and himself. That's that's the correct way. Um, and so he's just a very big person and he's very popular. Now, here comes something interesting. 
Clearly something was bothering him all this time. What was bothering him? How can you live in Egypt? The Torah says you're not supposed to go back to Egypt. You're not supposed to go back to Egypt. And there are all kinds of reasons, you know, for Parnos and all the rest of it. The Rambam, of course, lived in Egypt. He says the same thing. He says, we're, you know what I mean? In other words, you can, you can live in Egypt, as we all find ourselves necessary to do for economic reasons, but never long-term. You have to make plans, he says, you know, to make Aliyah. And he himself must have figured when he hit around 70, right? That's what he was, around 70, 70-something, that, look, uh, here I am, money's not an issue, uh, I can afford to make Aliyah, I can, um, you know, I can do it, but I should die in Egypt? Like you say today, die in Baltimore, you know? Die in Egypt? Uh, I don't have a good excuse not to make Aliyah. I can do it. And so, even though he could have gone on for another 20 years, living the life of Riley, and Torah Gadul of and he was well popular, and, you know, and, and like I said before, he was able to prevent fights between the Sephardim on the one hand, and the Mistarvim on the other hand, and, and, and work out the Kehillahs. They liked him. Everybody, the Goyim liked him. Everybody liked him. But he said, you know, I can't live in Egypt. The Torah says, don't go back to Egypt. So I did what I had to do, but now I'm in a position to make something different. So in, in his 70s, he made Aliyah. And he wouldn't live in Yerushalayim, which is natural. Trouble is, the Turkish governor heard there's a rich Jew, started going after him. And if I remember the story correctly, they beat him up. Here's somebody who was beaten up in the 70s. Uh, and so he, he fled Jerusalem. I don't know if they took his money or not. He had plenty of money stashed away also, don't worry. And he made it to Tzfas. When he moved to Tzfas, it was a good Turkish governor, and Tzfas was in its glory days. This is in the 1550s. Uh, this is when the uh, Cordoviro was there, the big Makubal, and when uh, Yosef Karo is there, and the Mabit, and they treated him like a Godolador. Uh, you hear what I'm saying? In other words, Yosef Karo said, now we have a... <laughs> This is funny. This guy said, now we have a real time <laughs> moving to Tzfas. Listen to this. In Egypt, he, had, he made thousands of students. One of his students was Darizal. You know what I'm saying? Darizal. Uh, matter of fact, another one of his students was the Shittim Megubetz. He had a lot of Talmudim. So Dari, when he learned by uh, this guy, by, by the Radbas, was a young guy, 13, 14 years old. I think he just got married. Uh, he wasn't Darizal later. But he became, as you know, the, the, the most famous couple of all times. And at the Radbaz, who lives in, from, from the age of 73 to 93, something like that, in Sfas, uh, I can imagine living in a nice house. Money's not an issue. You get what I'm saying? You know, he's, he, it's like a rich American making Aliyah. You know, that's the way to do it. You, know, you buy a, a super luxury apartment somewhere in Yerushalayim, and then you live like all the other Israelis. Yeah, right. And... Um, they give him the biggest covet and plenty of yeshivas and people talk to him learning and they're all these shyless so he's involved in that. So he had the life of Riley. You know what I mean? He had a good, he got to last 20 years. So he must have been close to 90 when the Ari moves to Tzfat. If you know the story that reads all now, it's not time to go into that. And like a, it's like a Kabbalistic revolution, you might say. And it must have been a very funny situation. Because here's the young guy, the Rizal was 30, something like that. And his, and he was like a regular person in Nigla, that's what I thought. And here's the, the 90, 80, 90 year old renowned Rosh Hashim with Yavad Yosef called David Abazimra, who's living there. And uh, there's stories, I forget how they go exactly, I don't have it in front of me. If you look at the Shiv or whatever, 
how they interacted. Maybe Dari went to the, his Nigla lectures, you know, in Gemara, and maybe he went to his Kabbal lectures, something like that. There, you know, once you get into the you get into the world legends. There are a lot of mices out there. You don't know which ones are real, which ones are not. I remember there's something about a Gilo Yelio somewhere, but, you know, there are many of those stories. You don't know which is true, which is not true. Uh, all I know is that Dari had, a, had a, a, what something very, very rare, especially in the old days. It's not successful, not so common nowadays. He had a very successful retirement. You don't hear other great rabbis like that. They usually die in harness or something like that, or die of heartache. He had a very successful retirement. So money he always had, as I just described, uh, he wouldn't have made Aliyah until he had plenty of money stashed away. And he gave tzedakah and all that kind of stuff. I mean, really, it's a perfect life. You're in Svat, in the, in, in, the, in the golden age of Svat. There's plenty of poor people. You can, give to, you, you can afford to give tzedakah all the time. So therefore, I'm sure he never lacked for company. <laughs> you know, and that goes, everybody comes to you and says, Shalom Lech, the next thing you know, give me a hand out. And uh, he was with the top Rosh Hashivas. Whenever you see a Takana from the basins of Svat, his name is always first, which means they give him the big cupboard. And um, and therefore, you know, and, and, and then he died, you know, in his 90s. So uh, it's not a dramatic life in the typical sense because he, he lucked out. The drama was when he was young and his family was kicked out of Spain. I just described for you someone who made a successful transition. It's not common. Most of the Sephardim had a very painful tr- uh, transition, naturally. He was lucky enough that um, his talents and his, uh, you know, uh, character landed him in a good spot. Egypt was the right place to be, and Sfat was the right place to be, and uh, and therefore it's a quote-unquote a happy ending. I mean, he had children, he had grandchildren, I'm sure they're descendants of him today. I would simply say like this, if you're ever, by the way, he wrote on the Rambam, you know, if you're in certain parts of the Rambam where the Maga mission isn't there, it, it's all kind of stuff. And I'm not doing justice to this, to, you know, to go through all of his shadows and chubas, which are very, very empty. He's the one who lived in Yerushalayim, and he's the one, by the way, all the guys that walk on the Harabais, you know what I mean? They go, they believe you can go on the Harabais, they come from the Radbas, because he lived there, and he said, I know where the uh, Evan Shasee is, and once you, which is under the Golden uh, Dome, that's what he says, and once you know where that is, you can make your calculations, if you stay 11 Amas from here, and 10 Amas from there, you can walk on the Harabais. I mean, he's a very important posek, okay? Very important posek, and his shadows and chubas are very interesting as I said before, very interesting to read. And he talks about all kinds of, uh, uh, what, what should I say, every subject under the sun. So it would take me another half hour just to talk about all of his very interesting solitudes. I'll share you one that j- jumps at me. It's very famous. And then I have to close down because of time. He's the one who asked the following question. Why is Chometz different than all the other Yisurimits? And we go crazy over Chometz. We don't do that with other Chayav choruses. And and Davrisha Matirin, you know, Angel Matirin. And you know what he says? I remember this. The Chidah brings it down. He says, uh, you see from over here, Chometz on Pesach, the Iker is the Remes. The Chometz is like a, a Remes for the Yitzhar. Isn't that right? You all heard that. So by a Yitzhar, you don't even want a Mashaho. So therefore, all the Mrs. Drabona, because Chometz really is Batal Medarisa, as you know. All the misses, Balira, Balimotze, and 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 the all come from the remes, from the fact that it's representing evil, the source of Esau, and therefore you have to have zero of it. Uh, that's just an interesting take, uh, you know, from him. But my time is up. I've gone too long. These things are getting too long as it is. Uh, with that, I wish you a good day. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, 
please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.